I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today, we are live in New York City at Reimagine with a panel of experts redesigning how we'll all face end of life one day. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. Hi, everybody. First of all, thank you so much for coming tonight. We have an overwhelming crowd, so I hope that, uh, that you can hear me. <laughs> First of all, thank you so much for coming to this podcast recording. It's the first time I've done it live. I'm Kimberly Paul. I created this podcast about two years ago. And in an effort to invite everyone to be part of the conversation around end of life, um, I'm from Wilmington, North Carolina. But presently, I live in a 29-foot RV, and I'm going state to state with my German Shepherd to normalize the end of life conversation and to really encourage hospices to start taking care of those who take care of the dying. So we've hit uh, seven states so far. I'll leave here and go pick up my RV in Cincinnati. Uh, there was a little small accident um, in Indiana where I ran over something and took out my war water and sewer. Uh, so it's getting fixed while I'm here in New York City. Um, you can laugh at that. I didn't, but it's sort of funny now. Um, so I... Just want to say thank you um, for being part of this Reimagine Week for those who have participated. Um, it's been an amazing week, a very tiring re week um, to be back in New York City. I used to live here about 18 years ago in Tudor City. I used to work for Saturday Night Live and CBS Daytime. And I was wooed back to North Carolina with a show called Dawson's Creek in Wilmington. My grandmother died of breast cancer, and so I thought I would... I guess, volunteer with hospice. And so I went in, and there was about 15 people interviewing me. And by the end of an hour and a half of them interviewing me and me thinking, man, they take their volunteers very seriously, they offered me a paid job. And so I was like, heck, yeah, I'll do this. And I thought I would only be there for about five or six months before I went back to television. And that six months turned into 17 years. And when you are a storyteller, you really do find authentic stories more about life at the bedside of the dying than you do about death. And so I wrote a book called Bridging the Gaps, Life Lessons from the Dying. I published it. It was published April 13th on my grandmother's birthday this past year. And now I'm in an RV. And I will say this, if you ask me Three years ago, when I was VP of Communications and Outreach with a local hospice organization, if I would be in an RV, I would absolutely tell you, you need medication. Because I still pinch myself. But get this, the more we talk about death, or the more I talk about death, the more I feel like I'm living. And isn't that funny? And when you're around people who have limited timelines, they start telling you really, really what matters most. And it's not fame. It's not money. It's people. And the one thing that I believe we were all born to do was connect in a world that forces disconnection. You know, I, I tell people that, man, the, 
the phone should have really been invented in 2018, and Facebook should have really been invented in 1930, because we've gotten away from real conversations. We communicate via text and Facebook and not through phone. And I would give anything to hear my boyfriend who passed away 18 years ago from melanoma to hear his voice one more time or my grandmother's voice. And so I guess what I'm trying to say right now is connection is why I'm doing what I'm doing. And I'm trying to find hope as well in this atmosphere, whether it's political or just life in general, um, I'm trying to find hope again. And believe it or not, I am um, in laundromats, in RV camps. Um, and it's, it's just been an amazing experience. The one thing that I am so excited about is I've never done a live recording with an audience. Um, another thing that is really crazy is everyone on this panel are my heroes. I have admired their work from afar. And here they're sitting next to me, and which is really, really cool. And so how we need to do a few things... Um, of course, Reimagine has a little thing I need to read. But before we do that, I wanted to give you a couple of guidelines. If you do not talk in a microphone, I can't hear you. Or my production people can't hear you. And you'll be cut from the podcast, which I definitely don't want you to do. So Daniel, my family friend here, um, has, is going to be in charge of a microphone. So once we get to the audience participation, this is when please raise your hand and Daniel will find you and hand you the microphone, because I really think your questions are really the key thing when it comes to the recording tonight. And you guys can either bow your heads in meditation or just sit and listen, because I think this is the key to reimagine. Why are we here? It's a big question about life and about death. Perhaps we start a little smaller, and first ask instead, why are we here in this space together right now? We're here to create a brave, brave space. We're here to explore big questions with a shared spirit of curiosity, humility, and empathy. We're here in community. None of us are alone, and together we can help inspire one another ourselves, our loved ones, and our communities to engage in meaningful conversations about living and dying well. We're here to reimagine end of life, to envision a world in which we are able to reflect on why, we're, why we are here, to prepare for a time when we won't be here. And the most important part is to live fully, fully right up until the end. We're here. I would like to welcome my panel um, out, and again, thank you for joining us tonight. We're going to go through a little bit of introductions, because you might not know some of these people, but I stalk them every day on social media, and, um, and I'm so thrilled to have each of you here. So, Don, do you mind starting? Well, it is really a pleasure to be with you. And, uh, and you, Kimberly, and all of you. Um, 
I am a hospice and palliative care physician in San Francisco and uh, originally was not that. I started off in the world of hematology and bone marrow transplant and was witnessing really excruciating deaths, not just physically but emotionally, because we as the healthcare team knew what was coming and we never told our patients and we never told their family. And after a person died under our care, we never talked about it as a team. And that weighs on you after a while. Simultaneous to this sort of revelation of mine that this was not healthy, um, my father became terminally ill and my mother became seriously ill. And it became this sort of convergence of a wake-up call. And in the process, uh, I gave myself permission to start doing things rather differently, a little outside the box. And uh, eventually made my way to discovering the new specialty of hospice and palliative medicine and have been on a rampage ever since then to make sure every single person on the planet knows that they are entitled to this care, that they can advocate for it themselves and for the people they love. Thank you. By the way, she is going to be my doctor when I, as soon as I get a terminal illness. So I'm moving to San Francisco. Don, thank you. Kimberly? Hi, um, my name's Kimberly St. John and I'm a palliative care nurse from London in the UK. Um, and I'm also the lead for transforming end-of-life care for Guys in St. Thomas's Trust. Um, I've always been a palliative care nurse. Um, as soon as I qualified, it was I was advised to go into general medical nursing and to wait a few years before going into hospice. But I followed my heart and I went straight to hospice. And do you know, I really don't regret it. I think the beauty of that is that you learn person-centered care first, and then you learn the medicine after. Um, so people are really important to me, and that's why I'm so passionate about my work. Um, at the moment, I'm working on projects to try and improve the way we talk about dying, to improve the way we plan for our care and treatment. Um, and I believe a huge part of that is providing meaningful education to those around us because those in healthcare have the privilege of understanding what these things mean in terms of treatment and what it means um, for how you live your life. Um, so what I'm trying to do now is to translate some of that knowledge to, to those around me that you shouldn't have to access healthcare to learn about what it is. Hi, um, my name is M.K. Serwick, and I am a nurse and a cartoonist, and uh, I work at the intersection of comics and healthcare. Um, I started doing this work while I was working as a nurse during the AIDS crisis in Chicago, and I desperately was seeking something that would help me to survive and stay connected, and I stumbled into making a comic. Um, I was not the kid at school who could draw. In fact, I was told to put the crayons away um, and use my words. Um, but at a moment of need all those years later, I stumbled into this thing that has all this potential and power, and it worked for me. And um, then when our AIDS unit closed, I wanted to make better comics, and so I went into the field of medical humanities and bioethics. I wanted to inform the comics I was making with theory about why story works, why story is such a powerful healer and helper. Um, we actually 
really mediate all of our care in life through story. Um, and I want to understand the m mechanism of that. Um, and then as I was emerging from that degree, this idea that comics could have a serious place in the discourse of health and illness just exploded to the point where now 10 years later, the National Library of Medicine has a touring exhibit of graphic medicine. And there's a graphic medicine page on the annals of internal medicine, like the most, you know, old school journal. Um, and it's just, it's the right moment in time that people are open to this and there were the right practitioners ready. And um, uh, after leaving inpatient AIDS care, um, I had helped so many people die uh, who I had come to love through my work that I sort of turned to my own family. And then my patients became this, group of elders in my family, uh, the last of whom passed away in March, my aunt uh, and my mother and her brothers. So um, I left nursing in the units, but ended up doing it in my own life afterwards. Well, I think humor is so important in serious conversations, and I learned that from my granny. So I love that you have brought this to the uh, platform. Absolutely. Thanks. I do have to warn you, though, not all the books are very funny, though. They just happen to be comics. <laughs> Well, I can see humor in just about anything. <laughs> Allison. My name is Allison Gilbert, and I have a confession that I am not a nurse. <laughs> there are three nurses and doctors, uh, so I'm not in the medical field um, at all. I come to this conversation through being a journalist um, and an author. For years and years, I was a producer at CNN and MSNBC when it launched, and we're here in New York City doing this amazing podcast. So if you're from New York, um, I worked at Channel 2 and Channel 4 and Channel 7. Basically, any station on the dial is where I worked. Um, and then 9-11 happened for me, and I was on the job and covering the story and got way too close to the unfolding events. And... Um, ended up being taken to Bellevue. You guys are from New York. You know Bellevue Hospital. Um, and tubes were put down my throat to help me breathe, and my clothes were cut off in the ER, and came as close to death as I possibly um, could have that day. Um, and then that was on a Tuesday, as we all remember. And that Friday, my father died of cancer, unrelated to 9-11. So that double whammy really shifted my focus. Um, my mother had already died five years before, and I couldn't just go back to the way life was for me. Um, being in a newsroom um, had been incredibly intoxicating to me. It was exciting, and I felt liberated walking into the office every day. And then after this double whammy of September 2001, I really needed to shift my focus to make meaning of these um, experiences. So I launched um, an entire pivot campaign for myself, and I started using my journalism skill set to report on stories, which became books, um, that really were meaningful to me. So I wrote about um, parent loss. I wrote about what it means to be a mother without your own parents um, and how do you keep that memory alive for your children. And my latest book, which is my baby, which I'm so excited to talk about more, um, is really about that shift that happens when you leave that great raw morning space and you're ready to crack yourself open to remember and to keep memories alive. 
and how that process of celebrating a memory and that tether that you still have, how that actually fuels happiness and drives resilience. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. And I wish many, many more people on that day had survived. And my family was right here in New York City as well. And that was scary, but I'm so honored to be in your presence. Linda. Hello, I'm Linda Campanella. I am somebody who became an active and passionate advocate for compassionate end-of-life care as a result of the wonderful care my mother received at the end of her life. Uh, I'm a baby boomer who juggled um, many moving pieces and priorities in order to be primary caregiver um, to my mother so that I could help birth her into death the way she birthed me into life. Uh, I'm a daughter who can sit here today and say that my family gave my mother a good death. And for that, I owe a debt of gratitude to hospice. I'm somebody who's sad that hospice is as misunderstood and underutilized in our country as it is, and I'm mad that a good death seems to be more an exception than an expectation in our country. I'm a resident of Connecticut, which three times in the last few years has tried to pass physician-assisted suicide legislation. And I testified, testified twice um, before the legislature, I think because I had written an op-ed that caught people's attention. Uh, the headline given to the piece was Compassionate Care, Not Suicide for the Dying. Um, I didn't testify for or against physician-assisted suicide, perhaps because I'm actually a little bit ambivalent about it myself personally, but I did testify in favor of the compassionate, dignified, end-of-life option that already exists, and that's hospice. I think more people need to know about that. Uh, and finally, I'm an accidental author. Um, I am a daughter whose grief kind of poured out of her broken heart through her fingers onto the pages of a book that became a memoir about my last year with my mother. It's a, year, uh, a book about living and dying, uh, about what we learn about life from death, uh, about grief and gratitude that enveloped me, and, and really about love that doesn't die. Um, the book is about my mother, and I'll just say a word about her. She was diagnosed as uh, terminally ill at age 73 and made very clear to us that for her, quality of life was a far greater consideration and priority than quantity of life. And so we as a family did not become preoccupied with... Um, battling what we knew was an incurable and terrible, uh, terminal disease, but rather we became preoccupied about injecting living into her dying. And we managed to have the most incredibly joyful, happy year with my mother. It turned out to be a year, not months that she feared. And um, I'm so grateful for that. And so I use whatever occasion I can, whether it's testimony or op-eds or giving speeches or in accepting an invitation like this to talk about end-of-life care and particularly hospice. And I do think that we need to share our stories and raise awareness if we want to change expectations, behaviors, or systems. So I'm really grateful for this opportunity to be with such super people on such an important topic. And we're happy to have you here. You know, I don't think I could do anything without representation of caregivers. They play a very vital role when it comes to our health care, and um, so it is an honor for a caregiver to be sitting on this panel among those who work in the end-of-life industry, so um, we're honored to have you as well. Elizabeth? 
Hi, I'm Elizabeth Copeland. I am a playwright and the founder of Grief Dialogues. We use theater and other forms of art to start a new conversation around dying, death, and grief. I started the Grief Dialogues a number of years ago when there were several deaths that had occurred in my life. One was my cousin, who was like a sister to me, who died of ovarian cancer. My sister and I were with her the last week of her life. And our family wanted to know what that week was like. So I wrote an essay for them that said what happened. And, you know, I, I'm a pretty funny lady and I put in all the yes, humor because, are. yes, <laughs> I put in all the humor that was really there. I mean, we all laughed, including Myra and including her very distraught husband. It, it was as good a death as any. But what I found when I wrote that is that my family said, wow, this is great. You should, you know, you should like write a book about it. You should do something else about it. And I decided through a series of other situations that I would instead write a play. And I really didn't see what was going to come out of it other than I enjoyed writing the play. I'm an old, you know, I'm a little secret. Don't count the years. I moved here in 1972 to become an actress. Okay. <laughs> um, and I actually got a few off, 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 off Broadway parts, but about a year into that, I realized I had, I had two choices. I could either eat or pay rent. I could not do both. So I got it. I went back to college and got my degree. But anyway, I took the, the story and I turned it into a play. And then I was encouraged to enter the play in contest. Lo and behold, it started winning. I would go to these these uh, play festivals to see the, the performances. And invariably, every single time when somebody knew that I was the playwright, they would come up to me and say, oh, I love what you said about, you know, the two sisters, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's exactly what happened. Or I wish my brother and I had communicated like that. And I realized that what we need in this society is an invitation to share our stories. We don't want to or we, we fear. We have vulnerability, shame even about talking about death, about talking about grief. And we just need someone to say, hey, here's my story on stage. Tell me yours. Well said. Andrew. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me, Kimberly. Um, I'm actually going to start uh, with a dirty word. Oh, please. Uh, my name is Andrew McPherson. I live in Washington, D.C., and I am a Washington lobbyist. I get the great honor for the past 10 or 15 years of representing some of the largest organizations focusing on advanced illness, palliative care, and hospice in Washington, D.C. Uh, we have extraordinary problems in this country, I think, as we all know. Um, healthcare certainly is no exception, and end-of-life care is one of the greatest challenges I think we face uh, as a country. Uh, I get the great honor every day of going up to Capitol Hill and working with uh, the White House and this administration, any administration, and getting to represent these types of stories you see here on stage. Uh, and thinking about, you know, how can we neutralize toxicity, not just in, in politics in general, but around end-of-life care, uh, around this issue that is so deeply personal um, and so human? How do, we, how do we humanize the issue of end-of-life care in Washington? So that's how I spend most of my time. But I think most most important part of my bio is that I'm the son of a 35-year hospice advocate. Uh, and I'm not an author, a lot of authors on stage, but my mom is a poet, 
uh, and has written uh, just an extraordinary amount of poetry on end-of-life care. So I'm honored to be here and honored to uh, think with you and talk with you about what's happening in Washington and beyond in this country because uh, I'm optimistic. I think we've made a lot of progress. Uh, we have a long way to go, but we're going to keep telling these types of stories in Washington in order to neutralize some of that toxicity and really make progress. So thank you for having me, Kimberly. Absolutely. And I, I know Andrew and his mother very personally, and please never leave Washington. We have to have someone like you there um, giving people like us in this room a voice. So thank you so much. And you're right. Your mother is a brilliant, brilliant uh, writer and poetry writer. So she's, I'm, I'm, She's adopting me, actually. <laughs> but if you noticed a little bit about the backgrounds of these, the, these panelists, they're not all clinical. And this is where I am very happy to invite, especially those who are not clinical, into the dying conversation. Um, there's two things that we all have in common in this room, and it's we're human beings, and we're going to die. Now, hopefully, there are many more commonalities but those two I know are self-evident. And so really what I wanted to start off, what we're going to do is we're going to ask a couple of questions of our panelists, give them a chance, and then we're going to open it up um, to you guys because I think it's really important that you participate in this conversation too because believe it or not, you will one day die. So I guess my first question is why do we need to reimagine end of life? And, and you know, we're here for a week with Reimagine, who in here, by a raise of a hand, has participated in this whole week-long series? Raise your hand. That's awesome. Awesome. Um, you know, this is a very new event, and this is one day, this entire sanctuary that we're at in, on the Upper West Side in New York City will be full, I promise you, um, because it's happening and you're on the cusp and, and the original individuals that are diving into this. But why do we have to even reimagine end of life? Allison, why don't you start? Well, in, in my experience um, being an author who then speaks um, across the country, what I have really discovered, and it came from a personal place at first, is that I think most people are passive when it comes to remembrance um, because what happens when loss first happens is that you are the recipient, hopefully, of support. And what I mean by that is people may go to the funeral, they may attend the wake, they bring a pie to a shiva, you know, whatever they do. People know their roles and they take their places and that immediate time of loss seems mechanical, that you just instantly know what's expected of the mourner and those who are supporting the person who's mourning. In my experience, what needs to be reassessed is the responsibility of those of us who lose a loved one to pivot to being active. So you have to transition from being a passive recipient of support to be someone who is active about remembering. And that's why I wrote um, my last book, um, which is really about how. It's one thing to say you should be remembering better, differently. What are the opportunities um, besides lighting a candle or going to a cemetery? Um, but there's things that we can do that are practical and creative and don't cost any money that could really make us feel close. But it's that understanding that 
the responsibility is really up to us. And so there is something that we said before about um, opening up a conversation and joining it. I would actually add to that. And I would argue that it's not about joining, it's about starting and being okay bringing up the name of your loved one in conversation and owning it for yourself. Because the one cautionary tale, and I wonder if everyone here would agree if it's been your experience, is that a year later, two years later, those calls of support have basically gone away. And what happens for some people is that you get resentful or you get angry and you wonder why your friends aren't calling you because loss is very private. And so if you then internalize that responsibility for yourself and don't just join a conversation, but start one, um, that's why I think we need to reimagine these conversations. The thing that um, really concerns me is that, I don't know about you, but I feel that most people now can't imagine being born or dying without medicine. But you mentioned that we're humans and we can we can be born and we can die without ever seeing a doctor. And there's something I think about just coming back to who and what we are and taking, taking it back to our spirit and the way we live. Um, and then thinking about medicine to complement that. Um, I feel like that has really, really changed through society for many, many years. And it stops us really from, from thinking about value at the end of life. Um, and what value means. Oh, that's a great, great. M MK, did you have? Yeah, I was going to just follow up on that, and I, it goes well together, is that I think the the passivity that you talked about and the um, having to find the boldness to start the conversation um, in grief is also true long before that, starting the conversation about what my hopes and dreams are for when I die, when you're 20 or 30 or 40 or, or whenever, like starting that conversation and having the courage to do that, um, even though it's hard for everyone, that's what helps us get to that place where we can actually plan ahead and not be passive in, in the face of knowing what we want. I love it. I have to, Linda, as a caregiver, it's so important to hear your voice when it comes to how you feel on the other side of this, um, what do you think? How should we even begin or start this conversation to reimagine or change how we are dying? Well, the thought that occurred to me when you first posed the question was, a longer life isn't necessarily a better life. And I think one might argue that the healthcare system right now with all its incentives and education um, is sort of, pushes people to prescribe more, uh, to do more treatments, to do more uh, interventions. And uh, that may not be what is in the best interest of the patient in the final analysis. So I think a combination of um, misplaced expectations on the part of patients and families that doctors are superhuman somehow, or that this treatment is going to be miraculous, that combined with uh, the belief of many physicians, and I think the medical community writ large, that death is somehow a failure, leads to this cycle of more treatment and more treatment long after you could really expect any um, long-term benefit. And it compromises the quality of life significantly. So I, I think change around um, the medical system and 
incentives. There's really not an incentive that I know for providing for a good death. I don't know that there is a reward for that necessarily. Uh, so, you know, again, long life isn't necessarily uh, a better life. And for us, for my mother and for many families, quality of life was the, the primary objective, and we achieved it. And it was difficult, I will say, from the perspective of a daughter when my mother decided halfway through her chemo regimen that two treatments were enough. Uh, she was completely zapped of her energy. She lost all oomph, and so our focus on living while dying was very difficult when she had no energy to get out of her recliner chair. As a daughter who wanted her to live forever, I kind of gulped, but I needed to respect that on her part. Her wish was to live well for as long as she had to live. And thankfully, she had a doctor who supported that, but I think we should have had a palliative care consult as soon as that diagnosis was delivered. That's actually considered standard of care. Now, there's a lot of things considered standard of care that are not followed, but that's actually in writing in oncology. The American Society for Clinical Oncologists have said that at the time of a serious diagnosis, palliative care should be a part of the plan of care. So you all know that now, and you're entitled to it, and everyone around you knows that, and you tell them that. And when the doctor says, oh, no, 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 they're not dying, then you can educate them. Tell them to go read their clinical guidelines. That being said... Um, Really, education, I think, is critical when it comes to anything we fear, which is death, is a huge fear topic for most human beings. So education, not only in the healthcare system for providers, huge blind spot in medical school. There, I, I tell this story that as, as a medical trainee everywhere in this country, you are required to do certain specialties. You must rotate through them to experience them clinically for a certain amount of time before you can graduate medical school. As an example, one of them is obstetrics and gynecology. No matter what specialty you're going to practice, you must spend a minimum of six weeks in this specialty, even though only 50% of the population will ever access this care. There is no requirement for a single day, let alone hour, learning about how to care for someone who's dying. Even though everyone will encounter that, no matter the specialty they choose. This is a blind spot in medicine, in medical education. So it's not only that doctors are trained with a mindset that death is a failure, they don't have anything else to consider because they haven't been given an education. I know how to diagnose signs and symptoms of pneumonia or of arthritis or what have you, but there was nothing in my training that taught me to recognize the signs and symptoms of someone dying. And they're real. There's a way to do it, but we're not taught it. On the other end of the spectrum, those of us not in medical education, just human beings going through life learning, I believe that we are not born inherently scared of death. We are not born inherently scared of talking about it. We get taught that it's taboo, much like sex. These are integral parts of what it is to be a human being. And somewhere culturally, we get taught, don't talk about it. And so I believe that teaching us to maintain the humanity of death at a young age will change culture. Just as much as we need to change medical practice inside with our education, I think giving education to young people about death just the way that we do about sex and about all sorts of other health, humanity, 
details that make us human beings is critical. And I think we are inherently capable of it. And I was asking you, MK, earlier, like with your graphic novel, how young? Who's the youngest person that could read this novel? Because I think children are curious and they want to know and there's a way to teach them. And if we do it well, we get to transform things way upstream as a result. To follow up on that, um, you know, I agree that the medical community needs to improve on, on training physicians. But I also feel like I should play a vital role in that too as a consumer. What do you feel as me, non-clinician, um, because I know the healthcare, but there's a lot of people who don't. Don't you feel like they should play a very big role in their healthcare? Um, and sometimes I feel like patients and, and um, advocates of those who are facing serious illnesses, they need, they're afraid to say, wait a minute, this doesn't feel right or to speak up because the doctor always seems to be in charge with that white coat. Um, so in your, your opinion, doctor, um, what do you feel? I honestly, I'm asking this question because I hear so many people say, well, the doctor, well, the doctor didn't do this. The doctor didn't do this. And I feel like you guys take a 98% of that burden and maybe you need 30 or 40, but I also think we <laughs> need a little bit of that percentage. I don't think you should carry all of it. So what do you, what do you think about that? So I believe in advocacy and I recognize particularly when someone is seriously ill to ask them to bear that burden or their loved ones who are equally affected though in distinct ways when someone is seriously ill to take that on is an unfair burden. You need to do it right now because our healthcare system will not do it for you. Until you know to ask for palliative care and hospice and really demand it and to be able to push against the doctor who's going to tell you, no, 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 you're not dying. You're going to have to advocate. And I apologize up front for that because I don't believe that's the case, Kimberly. I don't believe when you are in distress, that's what you should be doing. What I do believe is that we should be having these conversations well before we're in distress so that it doesn't come to that. My dream is in medical, in medical education, the nurses will know this, there's a format to how we communicate as healthcare professionals. There's a lingo we use, jargon. And one of them, when doctors write notes, is we, we title something CC, chief complaint. All right. Whenever you go see a doctor, no matter what the cause of your appointment is, or if you're in the hospital, every note will start with CC, chief complaint. And my dream is someday, soon, it will start with CW, chief wish. If we transform why we want to be alive and we start communicating from there, then healthcare starts to meet us there instead of making the assumptions that it's all about living forever, no matter the quality. If we start with get to know me as a person, get to know what matters most to me, get to know what my best day looks like, then tell me what's possible. That we can start doing now. That you can do when you're well. You can go in there and tell your doctor, you know, what I'm really focused on is that I love to play tennis and this elbow is really getting in my way. But let's focus on the tennis, right? Or whatever the version is, no matter how serious it gets, you focus on who you've always known yourself to be and don't let people forget that. Yeah. Kimberly, can I add something Absolutely. to that? Absolutely. Um, how do we, we're getting at an important theme here, I think, which is, this 
I think, critically important question that we're all wrestling with, which is how do we redesign our healthcare system in this country and beyond to be fully responsive to one's goals, values, and wishes? Think about that for a second. Um, we're agnostic about what you want, but we care a lot about supporting you and informing you and making sure that the system is built in a way and the right incentives are in place to ensure that you have a values-based judgment about what you want in your life. Just like you made a values-based judgment to show up here tonight. That should not change when you face serious illness and end of life. The, the statistics speak for themselves. Um, about 70, over 70% 70 of individuals want to die at home. About 70% of in individuals die in hospitals. It's the exact opposite. Um, hospice stays in America average about seven days when you have access to the benefit under Medicare for six months. So I, I call it the big gap. Um, what do people want and what are they actually getting in this country? And the gap is extraordinary. They want to be at home with their family and friends when they're sick. They want to get up and go to the dinner table. They want to see their grandson graduate from high school. Uh, and yet all too often, People are dying in inpatient settings in ICUs across the country. Unless you're lucky enough to be an advocate and be supported or have care from somebody like uh, Dr. Gross, uh, we want to have our pain managed, yet all too often we die in isolation and in pain. So we have a big gap in this country. Policy plays a critically important role in moving and closing that gap. That is our ultimate goal. But I think unless we keep having these conversations, we have a cultural challenge in this country with thinking about death. And that's why reimagine is important. That's why all of these individuals on the panel are so critically important. But that's why you're important. The fact that you showed up here tonight, I think, is a testament to uh, this goal we have of continuing a conversation about the challenges that we face when thinking about end-of-life care. I would like to add, too, uh, and I totally agree with what you're saying, the thing... Grief dialogue started kind of as sort of a macabre entertainment a little bit, mainly to show the humor in dying and to share stories and to allow other people to share stories. This past June, we had several sold out, five sold out midweek performances in Seattle. And uh, uh, every one of them, but this one person in particular, she's a nurse at Kaiser Permanente, she came up to me afterwards and she said, our doctors need to see this. Because the shows, the different plays depict not only someone who's dying, but someone who is thinking about buying a burial plot. Uh, or it could be somebody who already has died. And the two sisters who were in the room when it happened have very different memories of that death. And those are the patients that doctors are going to be seeing. A perfect example of, of that is you may not have treated the pa you may not have treated the patient who died. But if you're uh, if you're a patient who comes in with heart palpitations or anxiety and you treat that and you say, well you don't have high blood pressure, you don't have this, and then lo and behold, somehow it comes out that your mother just died. The patient's mother just died. And that's what's happening. But they don't ask those questions. 
And I just want to add one other thing, too, is um, I think the doctor has been such an authoritative figure for so long. I know in my father, who was military, and he was a non-commissioned officer, so he was a, a master sergeant, when he was dying of cancer, and I won't go into the whole details, but his care was not the way it should be, and it was in a medical teaching hospital, I blew a fuse, and I went out to find the doctor. And my father almost had a heart attack from the fact that I was going to advocate for him, because you didn't do that. And I think now we're starting to see a little bit more that the doctor, when if they're trying to be personable, then you can have a team. But when they're being very uh, authoritative and they got the computer between you and them, it doesn't work. So hopefully with Greek dialogues and, and some solid op advocating, we'll see the doctors take more of a, a, a role in the human side of dying. May I add to that quickly? Please. I want to echo something that Don said and build on it. The, the importance of sharing one's wishes not when death is imminent or one is in a crisis situation. Um, my mother's wishes were known to us, but it was a very difficult conversation to have with her because I knew death was coming. We were highly invested, highly emotional. Uh, I want to have a conversation with my children who are in their 20s right now uh, where death is off in the future. And there's a really good tool called the five wishes, and there are other tools, but that's one with which I've become familiar recently, and I commend it to your attention, uh, because it's not only a place to record one's wishes with respect to medical issues, but also personal. Uh, so if you want to live to see your child walk down the aisle, spiritual, emotional, it's a place to capture all of that. And while we're throwing around statistics, I believe it's only 57% of American adults have any form of advanced directive. And yet what they, this equal numbers, and maybe it's an even larger percentage, fear most is being a burden to their loved ones. They don't want to be a burden. Well, the biggest burden on a loved one is not knowing what the right decision is, not knowing what mom or dad or so-and-so might have wished. So those, direct, those advanced directives are really a gift that we give to our family, and they're so important. I really agree, and, but I also think advanced directives is just one part of it conversation is very, very key in backing those. And plus, I mean, those documents are black and white. Throw some color in it. I mean, the, that's the fun part of dying is, you know, doing videos and telling your, you know, at your funeral and be like, y'all better be crying out there. I mean, why can't we laugh about this? Um, and I, I think because of my background is arts, it has always been arts, creative writing, television, film, about telling stories. This is what connects me so much with Reimagine is that it is giving art a chance to breathe in this very, very difficult space, which I believe is almost allowing the, these hard conversations to have an exhale and a big breath in. So talk to me. Let's start with Elizabeth this time because you come from the arts. Um, and then I would love, MK, you, your background as well is, you know, what do you think about the arts playing, starting to play a very, very big role in educating people about end of life, as well as sort of giving it a sense of humor? Oh, absolutely. The, our motto at Grief Dialogues is, out of grief comes art. Uh, I think that art is something uh, that's, what do I say? I once, let's, let me back up. I once worked for a law firm where they had this amazing uh, collection of art. 
And there was one little piece that was just down the hall from my office, and it was a little tiny porcelain, all white, and it looked just like the Michelin Man, just like the Michelin Man. And I said to the partner who was also in charge of purchasing most of the art, I said, so what's up with this? And he said, art should spark conversation. You, it doesn't, you don't judge it like, is it good art or is it bad art? You have a conversation. And I happen to like this piece because, and then we had a conversation. I think that's exactly what's happening now with art. There are, uh, actually at the Seattle Art Museum not too long ago, they had a huge exhibit on women artists that were little known. Most of them, their husbands were well known as artists. But if you went in there and you looked and then you, you said, well, wait a minute, her work's better than his. You know? <laughs> but, but the point being that we're starting to see kind of the, the tougher issues, the sexual assault issues and, and dying, dying in pain. We're starting to see art come out of that where it's actually, um, I don't want to say palpable or yeah, palpable, that you really feel it in art. And I think that's where we need, we need to grab people's attention. And the only way you're going to do that is with emotions and feelings. MK, what about, what about your comic strips? Um, how have you seen that change? Even interaction with patients and families, how have you feel like your comic strip touches people in a different way? Um, well, more broadly than my own work is part of a larger movement called graphic medicine, which, as I mentioned before, is kind of the intersection of comics about healthcare. And so a couple of ways. One is um, there are actually many graphic memoirs that already are in existence by people who are uh, patients who have gone through an illness experience, caregivers who have cared for families. Uh, one example would be like Mom's Cancer by Brian Feast. These are really, really wonderful accounts that give us the inside, let us literally look through the windows, the panels of these comics, and see what life with, with illness is like. I then, and many people around the country and around the world, are using these books as teaching tools in medical schools, in nursing schools, so that the voice of the patient and the family is amplified in the educational experience about end of life. Um, so that's one way. There's, there's all these great books out there to be read where you can bear witness. Um, and then the other way is actually one that I advocate for greatly, which is drawing. Um, I led a workshop at the 53rd Street Library the other day, and uh, the prompt to all of the very game participants was, draw a good death. And... Um, the conversation, the, 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 there's a the thing I believe in. First of all, you're probably sitting there thinking like, well, I can't draw. That's fine for you. <clears throat> you already have a very basic visual language, and we use crayons. Which oh, I like that. Is I a, can draw the crayons. Lower, you know, levels the playing field, and stick figures can get this work done. Okay. <clears throat> and there's a certain kind of knowing that happens through drawing that I think happens in a unique way than if you'd used words or just had a conversation. And so then we share those drawings and we talk as a group. And then you literally have a physical object that you can take home to start the conversation with your family. I never realized that I wanted nature to be a part of my dying. And so here I've got this thing to show you. And we can, boom, start that conversation. So that's the two ways. I'd love to add just two things just to amplify what we're talking about now. Um, and I say this as being the most non-Martha Stewart person Ever, um, the the first thing I'll get back to the uh, the funny thing about creativity and kind of the artfulness in a second. But 
I think for me, what I've discovered is that there's a reason why the art of creation is so powerful in this particular conversation about death and loss and bereavement. And I'm wondering if folks would agree. When loss happens, we tend to feel out of control. It is out of our control. And so we feel unmoored. We feel like it's a runaway train. We don't know when it's going to happen. We're, it, it just, there's a lot of uncertainty. And the thing about art is that you are actually empowered. You are taking control of the crayon, the paper, the art, the writing of a play, the writing of a book, the drawing of a cartoon, or whatever that is. And so there's this kind of pushback against what's untenable to what's really concrete that you can control. And so when I joked before about so not being Martha Stewart, so when I wrote Past and Present, I really wanted to give ideas. So there's 85 ideas um, about how to keep memories alive. And like I said, I am not an artist, but I know how to find artists to execute things that I want to do in memory of my mother or in memory of my father. Um, and of course, people who have written to me for their husbands and wives and children. And so just because you don't think of yourself as an artist, you can still get that empowerment from executing with the help of people who you then partner with. Um, so I just wanted to add, as to pose, I don't want anyone to feel alienated from the conversation because right. they themselves don't self-identify as an artist, nor do I. But as a journalist, right, my CNN cap came on. How do I find the people who can take a photograph and morph it into something that I can actually use as decoration in my house? How could I do an event that's commemorating my family, but in a way that's uplifting and happy and fun that involves eating and drinking and having a good time? You know, we call them memory bashes, these memory parties. How do you do that? And how do you then infuse that with like little fun projects that you can do in community together and not remember in an isolated fashion, which I think is also really important too. I was at an event actually um, this week. Uh, an artist was describing exactly what you're talking about, and she described it as emotional alchemy, which I thought was beautiful. Um, and she was at, she was describing the way she uses art as giving people the language to communicate when they don't have it already. So she sees herself as a translator. Which again, I, I just thought that terminology was really brilliant and exactly as you described. And art isn't always, just, just a quick comment, art isn't always something that needs to be created. Art can be a form of therapy. And when one is dying, when one is in hospice, when one is at home, the world shrinks. And art, whether one's dying or living, is a wonderful way to escape. And so as my mother was in her final stages and confined to home, uh, Poetry became a tremendous escape for her, so I'm thinking of your mother. Uh, but we escaped together into the world of poetry. Uh, and it was really wonderful um, because she was transported somewhere other than where she was confined. And she was exploring emotions and possibilities that were way beyond what her world had shrunk to become. So art's a good therapy and a good escape as well, whether one's creating it or not. And, and Kimberly, I think that art's very close cousin is innovation. And innovation. 
And this is an overused term in healthcare today, um, but I'm going to use it. I got to the chance to see Steve Wozniak uh, speak a couple of months ago, and it was wildly entertaining, very interesting. And one of the nuggets that uh, I took in his, uh, from his talk was this notion that there is no finish line in innovation. It just sort of keeps going. And that innovation is hard. Uh, it's, it's unsettling, it's uncomfortable, and you have to be sort of almost emotionally resilient to innovate. And I think it's a close cousin to art, and we need to be innovating more in advanced illness, palliative care, and end-of-life care. There's an extraordinary amount of innovation going on. Uh, incentives are being realigned. Um, you know, we're seeing uh, just an extraordinary amount of policy change happen in Washington to better serve those who are seriously ill and facing end-of-life care. But uh, we have a long way to go. And that's going to require emotional resiliency. I love it. Um, I also want to recognize that, you know, within this healthcare system, there are people out there that are doing exactly what we or I envision healthcare to be. And I will never forget a story that you told me Dr. Gross, um, she was in the hospital, man was dying, and all he wanted to do was fish. And he couldn't go fishing. So what does this doctor, who's probably spent 18 hours on her feet, she finds herself in Walmart going to get a fishing pole and fake fish, and the next day as she's walking by, the family isn't enjoying a fish outing right there in the hospital. And so there are people out there doing this kind of work and you should demand it and find them or move to San Francisco um, where she is at. But there are people doing this. Um, and to, to kind of, Andrew, to go back to you, you know, a very big day is coming up next week. And how can individuals how can me, how can I change Washington? How can I get what I feel is important about healthcare and protect those who are doing healthcare and advocate for them to, for us to take better care of them as they're taking care of the dying? What can I do? Yeah, I get this question a lot. <laughs> um, this politics is a ground up exercise. Um, it takes community organizing it takes developing a voice. It takes banding together. It takes working together. Um, policymakers are hyper aware of what's happening in their communities. Um, for the administration, it's what's happening across the country. Um, for U.S. senators, it's what's happening in their state. For members of uh, United States House of Representatives, it's the district. All the way down to the dog catcher. They are hyper aware of what's happening in their districts. And they must be fully responsive, to use that term again, to uh, what's going on. So... Uh, I encourage you to raise your voice. Um, I encourage you to write a letter. I encourage you to work through some of the organizations that you uh, feel passionate about to raise that voice to the best of your ability. Because you know what? I get emails all the time from members of Congress and their staff that say, can you turn off the spigot in, Wa in Spokane, Washington? We heard them already all the time because they have to listen and they have to be responsive to what people want. So you need to raise your voice. You need to develop a voice and raise your voice because they will listen. And the most important thing is, especially in this atmosphere that we live in, is don't get sucked in to the hate. And I'm going to say this because I, I, I don't have television, but my where I'm staying this week, they do have television. 
And when I turned it on for about an hour, and I had to turn it off because of the anxiety I was feeling, um, not only with the bombing in New York, but the tragedy that happened in Pittsburgh. Um, and I think it's the way we deliver our message. We cannot get sucked up and allow how we deliver it to be, to be the most important part. It's got to be done with love and kindness and connection. And I know it's so easy to be caught up with this atmosphere of you're right, I'm wrong, vice versa. And so how we deliver our message is going to be very, very important. And, and I'd like, like to just add one more thing, which is um, I want to give you some hope um, and some optimism because I know it's hard out there. Um, every single piece of legislation that the organizations that I work with support and have helped develop with in the United States Congress is bipartisan and bicameral, meaning it's introduced in both houses of Congress. Every single one. Uh, these are issues related to support hospice, to support palliative care. Um, every single one is bipartisan, and we have made an extraordinary amount of progress in the past 10 years in politics and in policy, despite the political headwinds. Um, and that is because we keep telling stories. Every member of Congress has a story. Every member of Congress is human. I know it's hard to believe, but they are. And they all have personal stories, good and bad. Uh, either way, it's an opportunity to unlock a conversation with them about advanced illness, palliative care, and end-of-life care. Thank you. So one other thing that we're going to do before we invite you guys to be a part of this conversation is really quickly, I'm going to start with you, Don. What is the one tip, the top tip in your mind that you could voice about how one can change or take control of their end of life today? Uh, turn to the person next to you and tell them what brings you a sense of comfort right now. Not just waiting for your deathbed, not just waiting for your grandparents' deathbed, but ask them right now and then give it to them. It's all about love and we don't need to wait for it. Kimberly? For me, I think it's about really engaging with the education and information that's out there. Try and notice if you feel passive in the process of receiving care and try and change that. You owe it to your bodies and your spirit to take control of what might happen. And there's been a lot of discussion about planning ahead. But how can you really plan ahead if you don't know the facts? So learn about the treatments that you might be offered. Um, learn about the ICU. Um, learn about people's experiences of being in those environments and then help it shape your decision-making processes. But I think my biggest piece of advice is to learn and to be a, an active partner in, in your care. Okay. Um, I think I would say choose someone to speak for you if you can't speak for yourself and tell them what's important to you and what makes you feel comfortable and what you want and what makes you uncomfortable. And make sure that you've had that conversation with that person and that person may not be the most obvious person in your life, like your spouse. They may be the worst person because they're gonna be devastated. Maybe it's your best friend, maybe it's someone you knew in college. Just identify that person and talk to them. Awesome, awesome. 
I'm going to use my time to offer three ideas from my book about how to keep memories alive. Is that okay? Okay. So these are not my favorite because it's like having children. You know, you don't want to pick your favorites. But here are three. One, if you have young children or grandchildren or sisters or brothers, when you're talking about a loss, especially when children, let's talk about children when they're young, put that relationship in the context of them, not you. So in my case, as an example, when I talk about my mom and dad, I never say to my children, my mom and dad. I always say your grandma and your grandpa because it makes that relationship theirs. And as we know, children... So children are self-centered by nature, developmentally, like totally cool. And so if you want your children to own that connection for themselves or your grandchildren, just reorient your language. That's free, right? Okay. Number two, I can go on with three. Is that all right? Okay. So um, I love this idea. After my um, father died, my stepmother got the greatest gift ever for someone who is mourning. And so this could be something that you then give to somebody else if you're going to um, celebrate someone's life. She got a wicker basket. And inside the wicker basket were 63 daffodil bulbs. And it was because my father died when he was 63 years old. And so the goal of that gift was not to make my stepmother go outside and plant by herself 63 daffodil bulbs. The goal, which we did, is that it was an opportunity to invite neighbors and friends and coworkers and relatives over to plant these daffodil bulbs together. And in that way, we could hang out, we could have fun, we could do parallel play while we're planting. But the whole goal was to then open up this opportunity to be a real celebration of community about my dad. So I love the idea of the daffodil bulbs. And they also come back year after year and they're bright and they're yellow and they're happy. And so they're very joyful. Okay. I love it. So one more? One more. One more. Okay. So this is a really easy one. I'm sure we all have our cell phones or if you're on your laptops or your computers all day, we're all possibly on Facebook, you know, um, you know, we're on Instagram, we're on Twitter or Snapchat. I think that a lot of times we post and it's like a monologue. You're not really expecting much back or you're not asking for much back. This is that proactivity piece. So on the anniversary of your loved one's death or on their birthday or on their wedding anniversary, whatever that day would be invisible to the whole Facebook world, generally speaking, don't just post ask for responses back in the sense of today is my mom's birthday and I would love it and tag all the people who knew your mom. And what are your memories of my mom? What are your pictures of my mom? And then it becomes a digital water cooler experience of keeping memories alive instead of it just being something that you're remembering alone. You can invite people, be proactive and encourage them to post videos, pictures, and their recollections too. And the best part, the last thing I'll say is that oftentimes you'll hear stories about your loved one that you didn't even know before. I love that. That's amazing. That was worth the three. three. Linda? And now I have to follow it. (laughs) And my theme is terminal illness. Um, no, I guess my, my bit of advice would, would be for those who uh, one day will confront terminal illness, either their own or a loved one. Uh, and 
the message is a terminal diagnosis does not terminate life. Hmm. There can be a lot of living to do, and it can be very joyful if you commit yourself to injecting love, laughter, and life into every day and focus on what is still possible, not what is impossible, what you might do for the first time rather than what you might be doing for the last time. And when the end of the journey approaches, please embrace hospice care. Hospice is as much about joyful living as it is about peaceful dying, and too few people recognize that. Uh, Hospice is a tremendous companion and guide to have on the journey for not just the last few days, but for months. And when you accept hospice, you're not giving up hope. You're translating hope, or you're redefining hope. Um, And the hope is for as many wonderful days as are left. So hospice is a gift. That redefining hope could be a movie, right? Yeah. And it is. Uh, go ahead, Elizabeth. What they said. No, uh, <laughs> I love you. Uh, I love you. Actually, I would like to add, because each one of those were just spot on. Uh, what I'd like to add is that you have open conversations with the people you love. You don't have to talk necessarily about death. Talk about life. Tell them how much you, you love them and why. Uh, make sure that the people that you that are close to you know that that you love them and that you care about them. Um, I'm going to tell a story on my 24 year old son and his best buddy over there is probably going to tell him right after this. But every night, our 24 year old son is, is in between um, school, uh, college, and law school. He it's you know time to go to bed and and every time I'm home. I go up to him and I say, Alexander, I got to have a big hug and kiss. I don't say because who knows if I'll be alive tomorrow, who knows if you'll be dead tomorrow. That's actually kind of why, but I don't say that to him. And he goes, oh, mom, and he gives me a big hug and kiss back. Do that with the people you love. Don't wait. He's cute. Do you think it would work for me? It might. He's cute. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Yeah. Wonderful. (laughs) Um, I'm going to give a shout out to mystery. Um, I think, and, and self-reflection. Um, I think that, uh, all too often we're uncomfortable with mystery and there's just an extraordinary amount of mystery and death and end of life, uh, care. And the more I, I love, uh, Dr. BJ Miller's quote, I'm going <clears> to, <throat> I'm going to butcher it, but his quote in Endgame. Um, which just came out. I encourage you all to look at Endgame. It's a documentary short on Netflix. Um, He's talking to, I hate to use the word, but it's in a clinical setting. He's talking to a patient, a person, and uh, having a conversation about her terminal diagnosis. And he asks her to sort of lean into um, the notion of her her life ending and that it's really uncomfortable. Uh, And he says, I'm not asking you to, to be best friends with it, but I am asking you to, um, have a relationship with it. And there's a lot of like sort of uncomfortable mystery there. And I think, um, it's okay to, it's okay to, for it to be mysterious. So that's my shout out for mystery. I love that. I want to introduce a family friend of mine, Daniel, please come up. He's going to be helping with the microphone, but I wanted to give him an opportunity. He has a new book out. This is a young gentleman. You're in your early thirties, right? Yeah. I'm 32 now. 32. And this young man, lost his parents within the same year and he's written a book about it. And I wanted him to have a brief opportunity to tell you a little bit about it. 
And then we're going to open it up and for questions for the audience to some of the panelists. Share us a little bit of your story, Daniel. Thanks so much, Kimberly. And also just Dawn and Kimberly, MK, Allison, Linda, Elizabeth, Andrew. That was so eloquent and awesome. Thank you so much. And I'm kind of on the back end of my first book tour, which is super exciting. My book came out a month ago today. And I keep saying the phrase, I'm finding the power of my own voice. And so to be in a group and hear you guys be able to speak is really, really heartwarming. So thank you for kind of sharing all this and doing all this extremely hard work. Uh, I was flying high in 2012. I had just done a Scorsese film and I had just done a Coen Brothers film. And then all of a sudden my dad was diagnosed with frontal temporal lobe dementia. And then five months later, my mom was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. 63 chemotherapies later, my mom went on hospice. And it was time, I always like to joke that my dad was my favorite parent. He was a rebel, Bob Dylan, Marlon Brando, James Dean, just really mischievous. And the dementia was kind of erasing that spirit and that creativity and those stories that we loved as a family. So for my parents' 30th wedding anniversary, I took them to Bar Harbor, Maine, and I organized a 30-hour oral history with my mom. And, and I turned that into a book, and it's called Room for Grace. And my father passed away last year on February 20th, and four weeks later, my mom passed away. And so using this oral history has really just been a gift to not only my mom to preserve her life, she was a special education teacher for 35 years. And so we tried to use a lot of the lessons that she learned from the classrooms with her kids who were handicapped and elderly and disenfranchised. And we tried to use their, their setbacks and their challenges and their limitations, and we helped reframe them for our family's challenges. So I'm just really, really grateful to be here. And um, I hope that you guys are able to find the power of your own voice. And I, I can't wait to hear what you guys have to say. And I'll be upstairs with the room for grace. Thank you. And, and so really death does not discriminate, does it? No. Um, it's the great equalizer. It totally is. So please, who has a question? Um, thank you to the panel for your being here and also for all of your work and contributions. Um, I have a specific question for Andrew, though, right? Um, so, talking a lot about hospice, and um, but I'm just curious because the landscape is that many, many small hospices have had to shut down, um, several large corporations taking over. Um, hospice care can be great, but not if it's a very understaffed, underfunded hospice, and that can cause a lot of stress. And then more broadly for the panel, one of the things I'm thinking about, this idea of the word, the good death, to me seems to carry so much pressure. Um, and I feel like um, maybe moving to something more that death is just natural and taking it back out of the medical um, arena. Um, of course, um, that's beautiful, the part, pieces that medical um, system and people can do. Um, but bringing it, I think, back to family and communities and making it natural again um, is something I would really like to see and that I'm working on. She sounds like a hospice nurse. Are you? I am a CPE student. <laughs> <laughs> so, Andrew, what do yes. you think? Studying. Um, critically important question. Uh, hospice in this country uh, over the past 30 years has become an industry. 
Um, when the Medicare hospice benefit was established in 1983, um, every single hospice in this country was not for profit. Uh, now, uh, the hospice industry is about 70% for profit. Um, I don't think it's a bad thing that it's become an industry, but it's something to be wary of. Um, I think when you inject profit uh, and capitalism and boardrooms and major investors into this experience, uh, it's ripe for some really unfortunate um, outcomes. Uh, MedPAC, which is a quasi-governmental entity that advises Congress on Medicare policy, um, has recognized this for, for years now, this sort of um, challenges between for-profit hospices and not-for-profits. Uh, I'm for all hospices, but there's no question, just to the heart of, your, of, of what you asked, there's no question that the not-for-profit community-based programs are facing serious challenges. Um, they operate at about a 1% to 2% margin. These are the original hospices, yet they're still operating in the original intent of the benefit, providing robust bereavement services in their community, um, you know, in taking all comers uh, and not turning people away. Um, I represent an organization uh, called the National Partnership for Hospice Innovation, which is uh, only not-for-profit sort of high-performing hospices, and these are the types of issues we're, we're wrestling with today. Uh, my hope is that we can have some really good hospice reform uh, in the way that we pay for hospice in this country, and I think we're getting closer to that. Um, but we still have work to do on the political side, but it's a really important question. I, I just have to chip in a little bit. I, when I began in my career in hospice and palliative medicine, I began in hospice and I worked for a large for-profit hospice. And I have to say that one of the extraordinary things I learned because of the structure of reimbursement for hospice, which I think most consumers are not aware of, it is a fixed fee that hospices get reimbursed by Medicare. You get, on average, it changes slightly geographically, but just for even numbers, roughly $150 a day. And that covers all the medication. It covers all the staff with the exception of the doctor who's a carve-out. It covers all the equipment. Now, you don't need an MBA to know. That's not going to keep the, light, the lights on. So the extraordinary experience I got to have with the for-profit hospice I had the privilege of working for was because they had... a first of all, just a larger number of patients that they were caring for. Therefore, the diversity of the needs of the patient was broader. They had more economic flexibility so that I, as a doctor, could be a doctor, so that I could provide care that Medicare didn't say was not allowed, but a smaller hospice simply couldn't afford. Because once someone comes under the care of a hospice agency, they are required to pay for everything the patient receives with rare exceptions, which we can get into the weeds of. But for example, if I say, you know what, I think you will feel better if you get a blood transfusion because it will help your energy and you're anemic. Most hospices absolutely can't afford paying for that, but mine could. So I could have the freedom of being a doctor. So I tell you as a consumer, if you have the luxury of living in a New York City or a large city where you have many to choose from, to focus on what are my needs, what are my wishes, and then do your homework and see, well, who can provide that? Not because you're going to necessarily need a blood transfusion. Maybe you're the kind of person that says the most important thing to me is pet therapy. Do you have pet therapy? And a nonprofit may and a for-profit may not but it's trying to think through it and knowing what you're entitled to and hospices are being strangled because the Medicare benefit has not been updated since the eighties and how we die is wildly different than we died in the eighties because of the advances of medicine. 
And that's the problem. We've got to update the benefit. And, and, and just one more thing to add to that. Um, I don't think the future is protecting the Medicare hospice benefit. That's not the future for this, for this country or for um, to have a good uh, end-of-life care experience. The future is how is, can the rest of the healthcare system learn from hospice? Hospice was the original person-centered model of care, an interdisciplinary care team going into the, generally into the home setting to provide supportive care. Our job is to say, what can we learn from hospice and apply upstream? Uh, and by upstream, I mean to a less ill population. I think that's where we're going to see things going in the next 10 or 20 years. And to add on that, I, I'm, I'm scared that hospice is dying. And, and, and I'm not, I haven't consulted with anyone. That's just my personal opinion. Not because of the benefit, but because we're not going to have people to provide the care. Because once you get into this field, it can be overwhelming. There's no mandatory bereavement for staff. And so I really want to stand tall and there's got to be some way for us to take care of those who are taking care of the dying better. And when we are learning how to live at the bedside, that going to my child's play at two in the afternoon is the most important thing to me, but yet I have a patient load. We've got to find balance and we've got, we've got to change that. Um, and I don't know how, but I'll put it out there. Um, any other questions? So there is a director in the audience that I have to introduce. Carol, do you mind if I give you the microphone and introduce your film to the audience? Um, Carolyn was, was on a, my podcast and she created a movie called Defining Hope. And so I just would love for you to talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, first of all, though, I just have to say, sitting here, thank you so much. I feel so optimistic. Um, you know, I, I often think my father saw his grandparents die in the home, and he understood the cycle of life because of that. And they had the grandfather, my, my great-grandfather was, you know, in the front parlor, and, uh, and that made some sense, and we had some relationship with death, and we've lost that so dramatically. But don't you love that we have, like, this unbelievable group of people on a stage guiding us? We will, f you know, we will f f we'll figure it out. I, I think that's the beautiful thing, is, is maybe we don't learn from our elders, our, our, our parents anymore about the cycle of life and that death is a part of life, but we're going to learn from you, and, and that's fantastic. So thank you. I feel, very, I feel so much better <laughs> than I did. Um, this whole week has made me feel like that. And MK, I went to see the cartoons today at the, at the library and stood there and smiled and learned something, and it, it's just, it's just a, a wonderful event, and I'm, I'm excited about it. Um, I did make a film that I follow eight patients at the end of life making all kinds of choices um, and trying to figure out what makes life worth living and it's called Defining Hope um, and it taught me a lot but, but one of the things that I wanted to, to ask you all to, to maybe think about or help us with is I, I'm kind of with you Kimberly. I think that it's important for us as consumers, as human beings, as laymen out here to figure out our role in the end of our life and to kind of have some understanding of what's going on with us. And we haven't really talked about technology and the role that technology plays and how, how much more complicated it's going to be. And, you know, we're talking a lot about hospice, but I'm curious, 
you know, that's based on this six-month time period. Isn't that getting more complicated as, as technology gets more complicated? And, and how are we going to know? So I think that we, uh, the audience, we have to know what we want. And we have to make sure that we tell. Jacques knows what I want. You know, we have to make sure that we look at the people that we love. And you've said all this, so it's nothing new. But um, Where can people find your film? <laughs> I'm totally promoting it because I've seen it. I love it. So please, where can people find? Well, you're lovely. It's hope.film. So it's easy to find. And absolutely. What's the most amazing about this film is a hospice nurse is going through her own terminal journey. And it's really interesting to see um, how the organization handles that as well as the family. And, um, and tell me her name. Her name's Diane Ryan. And talk about moving the needle on choices you make. In, her, in the film, which we shot like a year and a half ago, she says, I would never do chemo again. And sure enough, she's doing chemo for the third time. And I saw her last night. Um, and she's actually still here and doing really well. So we might think we know what makes life worth living at a moment, but man, that needle moves as we get closer to it. And that's okay. And that's okay. So what I'm, any other questions? Oh, please. I'm interested in hearing, I think, I'm sorry, the doctor's name, sorry. Your Dawn? Name, your name. Dawn. Dawn. And the nurse next to you, Kim. I'm interested in hearing, you probably have all heard of Yuval Harari and Homo sapiens and he talks about stories and many of you touched upon the point of storytelling but um, he also talks about the future of AI and AI taking over doctors and there being more nurses and so when Kimberly you talk about your fear of the future I wonder if that potentially solves for that fear and I'm interested in hearing kind of the points of view from all three of you. I hope not because you know what I want human touch Nothing can outrank human touch for me. And then I, that's period, uh, end of the sentence. So I'll pass it on to you <laughs> because I don't want a robot, but I want, I want someone to touch me and, and, and be in the room with me. I think I did disservice to kind of what he said. He says uh, in terms of the diagnosis being made by robots, but there being more human touch through nurses, but n not ever being able to replace human touch through nurses, but potentially being able to replace replace doctors through AI. Well, that's a little confronting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, re <laughs> Are you ready to retire? <laughs> I mean, sure, if all you think a doctor is good for is diagnosis, then yeah, you better retire me. But I'd like to share a quick story about an orthopedist. Orthopedists have a particular persona. Uh, they're, they're boxed into a pretty tight box of being called jocks who like to play with big power tools. And, and so if there's not something broken for me to patch together, you know, call the internist. Um, I blew out my knee right before my dad's terminal diagnosis and needed to see an orthopedist to put my knee back together again. And he knew what was happening in my life as the healing of my knee was occurring saw me through my father's death. And when I went to see him in follow-up, again, I'm here for my knee. He sits down to me face-to-face, -face, really close like this, puts his hand on my knee and says, your knee is fine. How are you? 
I don't know that you can program AI to figure that out. If you can, fine. You know what? The human race can go again away, and maybe that's how we'll all be saved. Talk about legacy, because we're on the precipice if we don't figure this out. But hopefully it will be inspired by human beings. I love it. Kimberly? I don't have anything significant to add to that, really, I think. Um, but you, you can keep talking. That British accent. Oh, yeah, just keep talking. It's Welsh, actually. So it's a bit dodgy. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm consciously trying to space my words so you can understand me. I wouldn't be like this in Swansea. Um, I, think, I think there's no replacement for the human spirit. And AI may give us the tools to free up some of the work. Um, so we might be better at looking at results or just finding habitual um, things that happen to people and that might help us to help them more quickly, but there will never be a replacement for humans. I, think. I do believe, though, if you have an AI that can document and take over the oh, documentation yes. that, yeah. so people can actually become the doctor or the nurse they truly wanted to be and got into the business to be. Now we're talking. Now we're talking. But uh, it's the documentation um, that I think is a killer, which maybe an AI can do that. Oh, yeah, I'm all for that. <laughs> all right, there's one more question. Hey, everybody. Um, so as somebody who had my, my grandmother went through hospice care, and one of the interesting things is, Don, you were talking about pet therapy. I think most people, when I think hospice, think, okay, end of life, like how am I lifting somebody up, taking care of them, you know, bathroom needs, their home needs. But you're talking about pet therapy. I mean, I think there's that destigmatization of what hospice can be for people. Can you talk a little bit about um, types of care within a hospice that maybe people aren't necessarily talking about? Yeah, well, and I think you have some direct experience as well, but certainly the kind of care that's available in hospice is really limited only by our imagination. Um, you can request anything, and it will then be a matter of how creative the hospice team can get to delivering on it. There are very, very small, significant limitations that Medicare absolutely puts on hospice as far as what they can and cannot do that makes someone eligible to receive care, meaning if you want treatment that is intended to prolong your life, you're not hospice eligible. If your life happens to be prolonged in the process of focusing on the quality, which plenty of data shows is the case with hospice, fabulous. So if you dream of, you know what, I want to go to Disneyland, well, guess what? Hospice needs to figure out how to do that for you. If you say, I would love to have massage therapy, then hospice needs to work with you to help you figure out how to do that. If you say, you know what, my pain is out of control, both mentally, spiritually, and physically, then hospice needs to support you and your family, mind you. It's your whole family, your, however you define them. That's hospice's responsibility. So it's really a matter of your imagination. Just to add to that, um, I work in a really busy, large teaching hospital in central London, and we work miracles like you describe all the time. We now have a policy on how to arrange weddings in the hospital. Um, we bring pets in as much as it's safe. You know, this is a place with infection control regulations and, you know, everything's busy, but we'll, we'll try and move the earth to make people happy and comfortable. And I think that's exactly what hospice is all about. It definitely, I mean, I remember my hospice, they, they had a, volunteers 
are huge in hospice for those of you who do not know. But we had volunteers that would wash the cars because in the South we have, we drive cars and, um, and we have this long procession. And and so my whole, we had a whole team to go wash cars and clean cars. So the family wouldn't have to worry about the McDonald's bag in the back and, and things like that while they can still sit at the bedside. And let, let me, one other thing about the pet therapy it's not only pet therapy, but we created a program to take care of those pets in the house of the terminal illness. Because if you are sick and you feel like you're going to leave the one person, well, I should say one animal that has been there, they worry about where's my animal going. So we created this whole volunteer program to go in and walk the dog and feed the cat and empty the litter box. So that animal, and then we would rehome that animal to a good home. And 99.9% of the time, it was with hospice staff. Um, so, I mean, you, seriously, it could be, it, it, it's, it's, un, it's unlimited what hospice can do. Um, and that's what I loved about hospice and the creativity. Linda, you had a to, Just one quick thing to underscore or add. Uh, it is a team. It's not just about the medical care. My mother's existential pain was far greater than the physical pain she ever endured. So the spiritual counselor who was part of the hospice team was, for our family, the most important player on the team. There was also a social worker, uh, and she wanted to visit us. She couldn't believe that the four siblings were actually getting along and agreeing. She said, what, there's no dysfunction in your family? You know, but she, had there been, had we been arguing, which so often happens, actually, when the stakes are so high and emotions are so fraught, we could have used the services of a social worker. It is for the whole family, as Dawn said, not just for the, fa- for the patient, and it's for the whole body, mind and spirit, uh, as well as the physical um, body. And we're working on that benefit so we can die of old age in America, right, Andrew? We're trying. Under hospice care. Good. Um, Any other questions? Oh, yay. Wow. Thanks, Daniel. Hi, my name is Lindsay Wright. And full disclosure, I'm a volunteer advocate for Compassion and Choices, which is an organization that is helping to co-sponsor this week. And they are fighting for medical aid in dying, which you refer to as physician-assisted suicide, which I would take issue with. But nonetheless, um, medical aid and dying legislation here in New York and across the country. And I would like to offer you know, a vision for how we can reimagine end of life. And I really do believe from the evidence that we are seeing in states that are adopting medical aid and dying legislation that hospice, end of life choices, palliative care all dramatically improve as a result of of physicians talking more openly and people understanding their options at end of life and asking for these kinds of conversations to have with their doctors and other loved ones and demanding better care and better end-of-life management. We're seeing that in Oregon, for example, where they've had this law for 20 years, that more, far greater percentage are now using hospice care and dine at home, as many people wish, and if you mention that, then we're in states where there is not this legislation. And I also believe that, you know, many of you said that this is a nonpartisan issue, and I agree that even medical aid and dying legislation is nonpartisan. And I think that we all have to make an effort to involve people from different backgrounds, Um, who are not white, who from different races and 
religions in this conversation about what does end-of-life care mean for people who, um, who may not have necessarily the resources to, uh, to uh, sort of demand certain treatments or whatever, but, but really need to have those many different options for, for better end-of-life care. So that's, what, that's how I imagine could well, I, I thank you for, for your comments, and I, I can't tell you that it's coming, um, and I believe the more options we have at end of life, the better, because one does not fit all, so I thank you for your work, um, and... Um, Kimberly, could I speak please. a little bit, because I'm from Washington State, where we are celebrating our 10th year of uh, Death with Dignity, in the state, since we have the law, it's uh, part of End of Life Washington. I know there's End of Life New York here as well. Uh, a lot of people don't understand what the uh, process is. And it's people often think, well, you're just going to commit suicide. You're just going to you know, off yourself because you don't want to be in pain anymore. It's very complicated and it's very difficult. You have to physically be able to ask for it, and two doctors have to agree to it, you then have to wait 15 days, and then you have to ask for it again, and then you wait a longer time, and then when you get it, you have to be able to swallow it, okay? So I'm actually right now writing a play about a man, a friend of mine, whose husband died using the law, but it was very complicated. It, and in his case, it took 22 hours to die, and his esophagus was about to explode, which meant he would not be able, he would be in his most horrible suffering and pain, and he would not be able to swallow it. So I, I love what we're doing. with De Death with Dignity is actually a, a sponsor of Grief Dialogues, and I love that part. I think we need to better educate people about what it is that Death with Dignity provides and how to request it. In Washington State, I know from Sally McLaughlin that uh, about 80% of the people who request the green lizard, as they call it, do not end up using it. It's peace of mind. It really is peace of mind. They actually, you can physically see the body start to relax the second whomever comes in with it, you know, it's, it's pretty vile stuff if you ever look at it. But um, so anyway, I, I totally applaud what you're doing. I think more states need to take this on as an option. I think they need to be very clear about what it is. And, and one thing that I'm working on in the state of Washington is that the, the uh, medication is not one size fits all. So that, um, in fact, in um, Greg Hepp's uh, case, he it, it didn't work at all. And that's why it took so long. I mean, it did finally work, but it took a long time. Because he was actually, up until his diagnosis, was a very robust, active 60-year-old man. So um, thank you for your work. And let's keep out there and, and show the benefits, and the upsides and the downsides, and address the downsides. And, and also, just know that it is one option, but also palliative sedation is another one. And I, Don, do you want to speak to that very, very briefly about what is palliative sedation versus death with dignity? Because I think that it gets confused. Yeah, I think there are three terms 
<clears throat> and language does matter, um, that there are three terms that people often um, incorrectly weave together. So palliative sedation, death with dignity, or physician aid in dying, um, and euthanasia. There's not any of them the same thing. So euthanasia is not legal in this country, anywhere, in any state. That is when a physician directly administers medication with the intent to end a person's life. That is not legal anywhere in the United States. Physician aid in dying or death with dignity, as you've heard in California, it's called the End of Life Option Act, um, is when a physician can prescribe medication with the intention that it will end someone's life. The person, as you've already heard, must have a terminal diagnosis um, as defined by two physicians. They must be able to self-administer the medication, meaning they must be able to swallow it themselves. It can't be given to them in any other form. So there are many people who are not eligible for that law, even if it's legal in their state. For example, if you have dementia or you have an illness called Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS, um, you will not qualify to at, at the time that you would ask for it. By the time you'd be eligible for it, you will have lost the ability to self-administer the prescription. Finally, palliative sedation is when a physician provides medication directly although usually it is with a nurse, um, administering it. The intention is to relieve suffering. The intention is not to end someone's life. This is a critical distinction. And again, where technology has come into medicine, where we have created scenarios where people live in, in unintended ways of existing, such that to allow a natural death would actually be excruciatingly uncomfortable. For example, if someone is requiring support to breathe because of an illness that they've had since birth, and we have the technology to help them, and suddenly, if we were to withdraw that, they would have extreme shortness of breath. To ask someone to die naturally because we've removed the way they're getting oxygen and to do that naturally would be torture. So to allow someone to say, okay, my time has come. I am no longer living a quality of life I wish. And I don't want to suffer while allowing a natural death. You're going to have to remove this technology so I can actually die. You need to support someone through that. And the best way we have in those rare circumstances is to provide palliative sedation, which is to minimize the suffering while allowing someone to then die a natural death. Again, the intention is not to end someone's life, it's to dramatically reduce their experience of the dying process. And I'll add that, that it's really, really important for you to know what is best for you. One last question. <clears throat> My aunt spent the last few years of her life in a public facility in a suburban location just outside of Fort Worth. The facility was adequate to take care of her physical needs, but television was the baby keeper. And slowly over time, she just she took her glasses off because she didn't want to see what was in front of her. And slowly over time, retreated into herself and became less and less animated <clears throat> until she finally passed. So are we going to find ourselves sitting in front of television sets, slowly mentally passing away before we physically pass away? I hope not. I think the baby boomers are, in my opinion, is, are collectively 
going to rise up and change. I've been hearing this thing called pod living as I travel through the United States and people getting with friends, creating this common area, but their own separate living quarters and ending up taking care of each other and bringing in certain home health and hospice when needed um, because they refuse to go quietly into the night. Um, and, And I think... The main thing, what concerns me about that is socialization. We forget that socialization is such a vital, vital role when it comes to aging in America. Um, You know, I can see in hospice, when I was working full-time for hospice, an elderly lady who lived by herself and suddenly you send five people into her home. And within three or four weeks, she didn't qualify for hospice anymore because she improved. Her health improved. Um, I think it's going to be up to you and me and everyone in this room to not allow that to be an option. Anybody else have? Yeah, Kimberly. um, The number one studies show that the number one and number two indicators of mortality are both related to social integration. Uh, About just under or just above, I should say, 20% of seniors are socially isolated. So this would be the quantitative measure. You can measure whether somebody's isolated or not. Um, it's much harder to measure whether somebody's lonely. Um, you can be lonely in a marriage. Um, you can, uh, and it's self-reported, and there's a lot of stigma around the notion of loneliness. But there's an extraordinary amount of exciting research going on in this area. In the UK, they just appointed a minister of loneliness um, a year ago, uh, Kimberly. Um, and so AARP Foundation and others, uh, BYU, UCLA, are doing a ton of work in this area. I actually think this is one of the next big issues is trying to figure out how we can better socially uh, integrate and therefore have better health outcomes when we're older. My experience is that if they, for example, with my own family, when my mother passed, my stepfather had no rationale for that he missed her so much. So in 14 months, he just checked out. There's no really major anything. I have a neighbor down the hall whose wife passed away. Same situation. There's no, he missed her so much that that was there's, there's no sort of future without her in that kind of bonding. And the lesson for me is you've got to have some future on another floor in my same building. The husband passed, but the wife has been engaged socially and has plans for the future. Uh, and I think that's probably a major component in mental health that leads, translates into physical will to want to live and to do the things necessary to live. I'm seeing heads going up and down. So yeah, that's, that may be that's right. part of the process, which is how do you create ongoing hope or ongoing engagement despite whatever else is going on? I mean, there are also stories that I've heard that within minutes of one spouse passing, the other spouse passing. And I'm sure you've all got, I mean, I, I'm not in this field, so I'm sure you've all got ex- case examples of that kind of bonding and that kind of uh, uh, relationship, if you will. I think that's vital to have the, the social aspects. However, you can't force someone to be social if they don't want to be social. Uh, we were having a conversation about Chicago, and my mother-in-law just died, and she was in Lake Forest Place and then Lake Forest Hospice and so forth. They had everything. They had every class. They had everything. And she simply refused to participate. She's also very wealthy. She could have hired a good-looking young man to take her into Chicago to see the symphony, but she didn't. 
I, I would like actually to ask this panel because it drove my husband and I crazy with all these things at her fingertips. How do you engage a person socially who doesn't want to be engaged? There are a number of things that have come up for me here in both of you, actually. So we've recently um, been inspired by projects in low-resource countries, actually. One that's caught particular attention is in Kerala in South India, um, which is Pallium Hospice. And obviously, they don't have the finances like we do. They don't have the support structures in place. But what they do have are robust communities, communities where you walk up and down the street and you know your neighbors, you know what they want from the shop. Um, you go in and help them if they fall and you keep them company if they're sad. And one thing that we know is GDP doesn't equal happiness. And while we take a lot of inspiration from these countries, I'm really keen to think about how, how do we give back? Because I went, I went to Kerala in February to, be, to feel inspired. And I was sat in a lobby and I picked up a newspaper and I saw in the pages, Kerala is a very well-educated state. Um, and as a result, their young adults are going to the Middle East to make money, as, as we all do. How do we help them to understand what we did wrong in our society? We've got that disconnect. We don't have that community anymore. In, in many places, we don't. So how do we give that back? Um, but thinking about how we build strength, there is a movement in the UK called Compassionate Communities and also Compassionate Cities. Um, and that is about helping to reach out to people where they are without, without requiring them to access healthcare, um, to think about meaningful activities to do together, building resilience and building hope. In, in those circumstances. And then going back to what you mentioned about how do you get someone to connect that doesn't want to socially. Um, there are a lot of things about us that we sometimes don't reveal. Um, certain smells might be really comforting. Um, a, a song that I knew from school might, might make me feel a totally different way. Something tastes. So subtle things like that, I think. It's not always wanting to talk to someone, um, but you can feel connection in other ways, I think. And it's about being creative um, in thinking about what, what, what has made someone happy and connected in that sense. I thank you for being part of the conversation. I know Allison and Daniel, and I have books. If anyone is interested in picking some up, um, they're going to be in the lobby um, but I can't tell you how much I appreciate the participation of everyone in here, and especially my heroes, my mentors, um, the people I look up to um, who are changing my view of end of life through play, through Congress, through Washington, through caregiving, through journalism, um, through comics, through the UK and touching people in an acute in a country where end of life really did start um, and on just being you and what you give to patients is just knowing that you're out there makes me so happy so can you please tell these individuals thank you Thank you so much for all the support over the last two years. Next season, we'll have a different format as you will journey alongside me as we visit each state on my Live Well, Die Well tour. And never forget, you're the designer. <laughs>